Today, following the scripture reading, the lights will not be lowered in brightness as much as they usually are. And that is not only because today is rather dark and I don't want some of you to fall asleep, but more importantly, those of you who would like, I would hope that you would keep your Bibles open, preaching a little differently today. Can't read the entire second chapter of Acts, but that is the basis for the sermon. And you might receive greater blessing if you have the Word of God open to the particular place to which I make reference. Hear the Word of God as it is found in the Acts of the Apostles, the second chapter, beginning to read at the first verse. And may we always remember that by God's Holy Spirit, He always always blesses his word. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound came from heaven like the rush of a mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as a fire distributed and resting on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one heard them speaking in his own language. And they were amazed. These who are speaking were saying, Are not all of those who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Christians and Arabians, we, we hear them telling of our own, in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said they're filled with new wine. Amen. And amen. We will never, never precisely know what took place on that first Pentecost. But this we do know. That... Pentecost is one of the supremely important days of the Christian church because it was on that specific day that God came in the full power of his Holy Spirit and blessed the church in a very special and unique way. Please. 
please remember that the writer of this second chapter of Acts was not an eyewitness to what was taking place on that first Pentecost. No, Dr. Luke, who wrote this second chapter, is merely trying to relate to us what he had heard about the mighty, miraculous, marvelous things that took place on a specific day, the 50th day after the first Easter. I say that to you because within the various branches of Christianity today, both within the Protestant and the Roman Catholic tradition, there is a claim made by people who we now call Neo-Pentecostals, who are claiming that for an individual or a church to have the presence of the Holy Spirit, or better yet, to be possessed by the power of God's Holy Spirit, something subsequently must happen after conversion. Yes. They say that there must be a subsequent happening, a second baptism. They call it a baptism of the Holy Spirit. And you know, if you have this exclusive thing, if you possess such spiritual gifts as speaking in tongues or interpreting tongues or having the power to put your hands upon people and heal them. That's one claim. And the great Apostle Paul didn't think much of such a claim. And I want you to hear me loudly because after my study of the Bible, I don't think much of such a claim either. No. I think the overwhelming evidence of scriptural teaching on the presence and power of the Holy Spirit says something quite different. It begins with the prophecy of Joel, who says, and it's in this sermon of Peter, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. Notice the universality. When Jesus said that he would have to go away and it would be to our advantage if he would go away, for when he would go away he would pray the Father and the Father would send another comforter who would be with us forever. Now, when you take those particular predictions and teachings of Joel and some of David and of Jesus Christ, I think you have the overwhelming emphasis and evidence that God came in the fullness of his spirit at a particular time in history. And our belief is that particular time was the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the first Easter. And that ever since that day, God has been dwelling in the fullness of the Holy Spirit in his church. And what's more, he has taken up his permanent residency in every member of the church. 
Pentecost, I believe, is illustrated in the Bible as being not only the unique, but the unrepeatable, once-for-all happening of God sending his Holy Spirit in the fullness to his church and to his people. And it is a day which measures in magnitude of importance with Christmas, the day in which God became man in Jesus Christ, and with Easter. And I certainly wish most Protestant and Roman Catholic church would wake, churches would wake up to the idea of this which we seem to ignore and allow the Neo-Pentecostals to believe they have an inside road of prominence and preference, which they do not. No, ladies and gentlemen, what I'm trying to say to you is calmly but as excitedly as I can is that let's not pray for the Holy Spirit. God can't answer that prayer he already has. The Holy Spirit of God is here now. And if you claim Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he is in you. He's in me. Not on anything we have done ourselves, but simply by the grace and the power of God. Instead of praying for the Holy Spirit, let's pray for the insight to be able to recognize his signs of working in his world today. And that's what I hope to do today, to help you to be able to see his signs, the signs of his spirit working in our midst. And you can do that if you're willing to look at what I call the five cons. The first one, the sign of the spirit, confusion, confusion. Now just look at what we've been reading there in the 5th through the 13th verses. It doesn't take anybody needing a great education to realize that with all that wind, with all that sound, with all of that language speaking, there was tremendous confusion there. Just before coming into this worship, it was planned by our Christian education departments, worked on hard by Elder Mark Brown teacher, lead teacher, the third grade. We had a Pentecost celebration for the two-year-olds through the eighth graders. I, I wish you'd all been there. They gathered around a great big table that had on it a specially prepared birthday cake for the church, because this is the birthday of the church. This is the day that God's Holy Spirit came to it in a new and full way. We sang. I had the privilege of speaking, and down there I asked them to demonstrate by the blowing of wind, the little tongues of fire above the heads, and speaking in tongues, and asked them to make a great giant noise. Probably some of you heard it up here. They were loud, and it was confusing. And that's the way it was then. And that's the way it is today when God speaks. There's going to be confusion. I'll confess to you, I don't like that. I'm a peace-loving individual. Those of you who know me well, I like to be orderly and I'm well-organized. 
and I don't like confusion. And it's very hard for me at times. It's taken me a long time to get it through this Presbyterian skull that sometimes God works through confusion. It's taken me a long time to realize that we live in a pluralistic society, and the older we get and the bigger we get as a community, the more pluralistic we become. And the more pluralistic we become, the more it is difficult for God to speak to get himself heard, and consequently the confusion is going to get even worse. Now, I would not have you to believe that God is the author of all confusion. No, no. The forces of evil are doing much to confuse the world today. But believe me, ladies and gentlemen, sometimes, sometimes, God is speaking through the confusion and some of the controversy that is going on. You and, me, you and I may not like it, but that is a truth revealed in the history of Bible. And what we must do is not turn away from the confusion, but must learn with those people of the first Pentecost who reacted to the confusion not by ignoring it or denying it, but who simply tried to say, what is God trying to say to us? What do these things mean? That's the way we respond. Not being frightened, but with a sensitive ear looking for the sign of confusion, we ask, what is God trying to tell us through this confusion? That leads us to the second con, and that is confrontation. You see, that's what Peter did starting there in the 14th verse and going on through until the 36th verse. He confronted what was happening by believing in the Holy Spirit and confronting that confusion and confronting those people by claiming that the Holy Spirit of God that had been planned was working. Now, I'm so grateful for Peter lovable, likable, like you and me, Peter. So many times he was putting his foot in his mouth, but here his mouth was in the right gear. Do you ever think where Pentecost would have gone or what would happen if Peter hadn't been there? You John lovers and James lovers, you don't see them talking on Pentecost Day, but Peter was. Peter, you see, had the courage to stand there and to say to those people who were claiming Oh, these Christians, they're filled with new wine. They're drunk. They're out of their heads. Peter said, oh, no. No, no. This is God speaking. You know, every time I read that particular passage, especially in recent years, I feel very guilty. Feel very guilty, as some of you should. Because I wonder how many times God was speaking to us through the confusion and instead of asking ourselves the question, what is God trying to say, we ran. And instead of confronting the situation, we were silent. And we did not speak as Peter spoke with great courage. You know, he didn't have much other insight than anybody else, but he did have the insight of Scripture. Peter knew the Word of God. And when these things began to happen, Peter said, no, these people, they're not drunk. He knew the book of Joel, and he says, hey, what was predicted by Joel 
Joel is taking place right now. He knew the words of David, and he could quote from the Psalms exactly what David predicted and was happening on that day in history. He had heard Jesus Christ, who just ten days before said to Peter and the rest of the disciples on the day of ascension, he says, go back to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit. And on that 50th day after Easter, ten days after the ascension, when the Holy Spirit was revealed, Peter was ready. And when the Holy Spirit came, he confronted him. And he spoke boldly. Because he confronted the Spirit. Thank God for people who today, who knowing the Word of God, and who react to the best that they know in God's Word, are willing to say amongst the confusion and the controversy, this is what God is saying through his Holy Spirit. That leads us to the third con. Conviction. That's a sign of the Spirit. Look what Peter did. He stood up and he preached a sermon. And that's not bad sermon for somebody who didn't go to Princeton Seminary. It's not bad at all. As a matter of fact, at Princeton Seminary and at all seminaries where the Bible is taken seriously, this sermon that you have right before you and which begins at the 14th verse is the basis and the model of what sermons are supposed to be. And every student of preaching knows that this sermon, the first one ever recorded after the resurrection of Jesus, that is what preaching should be. In it you have four things. Proclamation. Jesus Christ is God's Son, Lord, and Savior. Then there comes an explanation, which is nothing more than the ramifications and dissecting of the particular thing that was proclaimed. And then comes exhortation, which says people get on the ball and do something. And then comes application, which shows people how to do things. Those are the four basic things, as any student of preaching knows, must go into a sermon to make it a sermon instead of just a nice little story. And ladies and gentlemen, when you are in the presence of preaching and suddenly you respond as did the people of the first Pentecost saying, what shall I do? What shall we do? Please, please. Don't give too much credit to the effectiveness or the cleverness of the preacher. All of his hard work hasn't done all of that. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the power and the presence of God's Holy Spirit convicting you. That's what it is. No preacher's tricks. That's God's Holy Spirit convicting you. The next con is conversion, and that's where conviction should lead us to conversion. Do you see what the people said? Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. That's conviction. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent. That's conversion. Repent. What is repentance? Repentance means turning around. 
It means turning the mind 180 degrees from this direction to that direction. It means turning the body as well. Repent and be baptized. That doesn't mean just the nice little ceremony, but that means become immersed, immersed in doing the will of God. Start thinking the way God would have you think. Immerse yourself in working with God's people. Immerse yourself so that you care not its cost in time, talent, or treasure. That's conversion. When conversion becomes more than just a word, and repentance is a reality not just of the mind but of the body, and people become involved, enveloped, inundated by trying to know and to do the will of God. That's conversion. And it's an ongoing process. It doesn't happen once and for all. We are constantly, or should be, under the power of God's Holy Spirit, being converted to the new direction that He wants us to go. And the last con, continuance. Continuance. That's how you recognize the Holy Spirit, when you realize there is continuity, a continuance of what started at Pentecost still going on today. And hallelujah, amen. In my ministry in this great church, thanks to God and to you, we see a continuation of the same things happening. You know, it's a great, great thing when you realize that Tuesday United Presbyterian Church, of which we are a part, will be meeting for the 190th time. This particular church, next Saturday, will be 107 years old. And it humbles me and strengthens me when I know that today I am preaching some of the same words using the same text that Reverend Stewart 107 years ago and all of my 11 predecessors have been using and I'm following in the same tradition. That's a sign of the Spirit. When we realize that through language barriers, time difference, and geographical spaces, we are united with people all over the world who are a part of the same church and have been for 2,000 years. I sit in a lot of church meetings. I deal with a lot of church leaders and officials. And ladies and gentlemen, how God can use us sinners and still throughout our fumbling keep the church going, believe me, that's proof that there's a Holy Spirit. And you, and you, and you, we are all a part of it. Gives you goose pimples, doesn't it? When you realize that in that tradition, because of the same Spirit of God, you and me, we are today's Abrahams. We are today's Moses. We are today's Isaiah's. We are today's Simon Peter's. We are today's Paul's. We today are the part of the body of Jesus Christ. 
let's not waste Pentecost and praying for something that has already happened. But let's wake up to the sign and realize we are a part by God's Holy Spirit of not only the body of Jesus Christ, but of God the Father, way back when, when he breathed into people the breath of life in creation. And after he had created, looked upon everything that he had made and said, it's very good. Happy Pentecost. Amen.